Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, you click on the links in the show notes for this episode or really any other episode, and then you shop as you normally would. And today we're talking about the Indiana Religious Freedom Law and the late arrival of D&D conversion documents. After all that, we have an interview with Eberron creator Keith Baker about the Kickstarter for his new project, Phoenix Dawn Command. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Which cleric domain is your favorite? Jeff Greiner, a man known to all of you out there in podcast land, which cleric domain is your favorite? Um, I did a little bit of research because I never like to be uh, – I, I never like to pick something standard for these th- questions. So uh, based on my research, I'm going to go with the community domain Ooh. from the 3.5 spell compendium. It, may, it was probably had an original source prior to that. But uh, any domain that gives you miracle as your ninth level spell choice that you just automatically always know, I, I'm on board with. <laughs> Plus, you know, I'm all about community. Right, right, exactly. And community organizers become president. It's a, it's a whole thing, community. It's a great domain. <laughs> Sam Dillon, yes, which sir. cleric domain is your favorite? I well, so I did not cheat and look at other editions and games like James, uh, like <laughs> other like editions. No, no, this, this is a D and D thing, right? Whatever, <laughs> all, all D and D. We're inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I looked only at the fifth edition player's handbook, and I really like the knowledge domain mm. for clerics. I think it's really cool. I like the idea that it's sort of. Uh, I like the idea in fifth edition that the cleric domains sort of help the cleric be good at things that sometimes other classes are also good at. For example, the, uh, the, the knowledge of the ages, you get to tap into a divine well of knowledge. Um, and like the, uh, visions of the past. And I don't know, it's just really interesting. Uh, you get kind of almost a legend lore thing going on there, but, but maybe with a deity focused or a, or a religious ceremonial focus. I don't know. It just seems kind of cool. Yeah, it's actually my favorite domain, too, of all the new domains. Uh, knowledge is, is power, uh, and I'm glad to see it getting the respect it deserves and not just being like, hey, you're, you're like a low-level multi-class wizard, uh, mm-hmm. like some past editions. <laughs> <laughs> of course, co-host of The Tome, Tracy Hurley, is with us tonight. Tracy, which cleric domain is your favorite? Well, I picked the nature domain because, well, Melora, and also... <laughs> Uh, I grew up in the country, so, you know, country girl. Liz Tice, of course, no stranger to this podcast. What cleric domain is your favorite? You know, my favorite uh, is also nature. And for me, the the reason had more to do with the fact that I, I really enjoy aspects of the druid, but some sometimes I just really don't want to play a full-on druid. Um, and with the nature domain, you do get some of the elements that you get in that the druid class, but you also get a lot of the fun goodies along with uh, the, the cleric class. For, for me, it's just a great melding of um, what I love from both, both classes. And uh, speaking of clerics and religion, uh, <laughs> we'll move into our first topic this evening. We're going to talk about SB 101, which was an Indiana law. Uh, that was recently passed. Uh, It's titled the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 
and it's a law which allows individuals and companies to assert their religion has been or is likely to be substantially burdened as a defense in legal proceedings. Uh, the bill has been controversial uh, because they claim that uh, people can specifically target customers uh, who are in the LGBTQI community. There are religious groups out there, uh, Christians among them, who are opposed to gay marriage. You know, a baker could use this as a defense to not want to bake a cake for a gay wedding, say. Um, it's been quite controversial, and specifically here in gaming world, Gen Con, which happens in Indianapolis in Indiana every year, uh, wrote a strongly worded letter before the bill was passed into law saying, you know, that they were going to really have to consider if they wanted to hold future Gen Cons in Indianapolis where they knew that some of the people who patronized the con would not feel welcome or at home going to all of the vendors in the city. Obviously, uh, Gen Con's hands uh, are a little tied. Once the bill was passed into law, it came out. You know, hey, we're contracted here in Indianapolis at least until 2020, um, and after that we will seriously be considering some other options and, and looking around. But it sounds like uh, without some act of God, no pun intended, that <laughs> Gen Con will be staying at least for the next five years or so in Indianapolis. It was really interesting to see the community's reaction. It seemed like when the letter first came out, they were very proud of Gen Con, I certainly count mm -hmm. myself among them. Uh, I do have a lot of problems with the law. And I think the community then, there was a little bit of a backlash, right? Um, although uh, it is it is understandable that it is difficult to get out of a contract sometimes. In the coming days, uh, there have been addendums made to the bill because so many other people reacted uh, poorly. Angie's List, Apple... Uh, Yelp, a whole bunch of other people. And uh, they sort of folded and added an addendum to the law. I would say that people who are against the bill are saying that this addendum doesn't go far enough. People who are for the bill are saying this addendum completely ruins the bill. So now nobody's happy. Uh, I want to start with my favorite history teacher uh, uh -oh. as we, we talk about the impacts here. Because please this be Sam, please been... be Sam, please be Sam. <laughs> Jeff, what do you think about this law? And what did you think specifically about the Gen Con first reaction and then their reaction once it became law? So I guess my my reaction is is similar to to what we've generally seen from the community in that in that um, discrimination against people um, for their sexuality is, is bad and that's not okay. Um, it's a it's a fairly nuanced issue in that uh, on one hand I also don't want to say that a business doesn't have the right to refuse somebody service. You know, if somebody comes into my business and is causing all kinds of problems, I, I have the right to refuse service. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's kind of time that we as a society just move past the the gay rights issue. Mm -hmm. um, not like move past it because I, I'm over it, but move past it because I feel like um, we should all be on the same page now. Let's let's all grow up and, and, and get to that place, you know. But I also know that these things, unfortunately, uh, don't always move as quickly as they should. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I am generally happy with Gen Con's choice. I also sort of wonder, and this is me putting on the gamer hat, not the historian hat, was Gen Con kind of in the market for looking for someplace else after the contract ran up anyway, and this allows them to sort of put their flag in this issue as they were doing what they were already going to do. Um, you know, Gen Con, for example, housing 
clearly is it clearly is is inadequate at, uh, for the the size of the convention, and that maybe other, looking at other cities was on the agenda for them anyway. Yeah, and I I think that's probably part of it, right? That the convention has sort of begun to outgrow Indianapolis. Whether or not it's a it's a political move on Gen Con's part, it's great to see a community of gamers yeah. planting their f- flag so firmly. Gamers are such a issue. such a diverse group. If if you're not uh, cognizant of that and and tolerant of the of, of the diversity of, uh, of gamers, then you probably shouldn't be at Gen Con anyway, right? I mean, you're going to run into people of all stripes at, at Gen Con, so you better just be okay with that. Yeah, uh, one one thing that came out of this that I think was a positive, going off of Jeff's comment, is I think state lawmakers are beginning to realize, uh, or in state politicians are beginning to realize how big Gen Con is and how much of a positive impact they can have on their communities. Uh, I noticed that there was a an article coming out of Washington State, and I'll link it to you, James, um, that has a, a Washington uh, senator saying, you guys can come to Washington mm-hmm, I um, when your contract comes out. Um, so, I mean... It's possible that Gen Con was looking for uh, another place to go after the contract was out. And I think to some extent, um, this this might give them more opportunities um, just because now now states know how much of a a positive economic impact it can actually have. Yeah. um, One thing, too, is I mean, we did talk about the fact that it's hard for uh, Gen Con to break their uh, contract, but they did work within things that they were doing. Uh, to t- try to put pressure, like my understanding was they were thinking mm-hmm. of pulling the expansion into uh, the stadium, Lucas mm-hmm. Oil Stadium, and, and things like that as well. So that's one thing also to point out. So Tracy, what about you? What are your feelings sort of overall on this issue and, and Gen Con's reaction to all of this? It's diff- Gen Con's in a really difficult place because while we like to think it's easy just to move a con. There's no way they could do it this year anyway. No, no. And, I already got a hotel. They better not. <laughs> and I know people who who either work at Gen Con or work on other conventions, and a lot of the places offered either are going to be a lot more expensive for con goers or more difficult to get to, um, or the cities just don't have the infrastructure for a con of this size, uh, which is something that's often uh, not necessarily discussed as much. Uh, but overall, I mean, obviously, I think it's probably pretty clear to anybody who knows me that I'm against the uh, the law itself. The people who wanted to defend the law were like, well, other states have this too, but most of the states also have protections for um, for many of these groups that, that we're particularly concerned about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also find it interesting if it continues to stay on the books to start pushing the bounds, because when people think of religious freedom for some reason, they keep thinking of Christianity, but there are a lot of religions out there. I think somebody was saying that there might be a religion that uses marijuana, for instance. No, th- there, was, there, there was an actual, uh, I, saw, I read an article right, shortly after this was signed that there was an, uh, uh, an organization that had applied for legal status as, as, a, as a church. Um, and it was approved like the same day that the bill was signed. Uh, and it was, it was the, the universal house of cannabis or whatever. Right. And, and so then, you know, the, the attorney general is like, well, this kind of puts us in a tough spot because they tell us that, you know, part of their religious service or, or, or whatever is smoking marijuana. And 
that's illegal, but th- this law says, contradicts that now. And so what are we going to do? I think they have a good case. Like the attorney general is like, I think they have a good case. So. <laughs> and then I also worry about things that uh, like uh, identities that aren't necessarily the common ones that we think of when we want to protect, uh, but may also start feeling pressure under this um I, I can't really foresee it, but something like unmarried couples in a hotel room, because like once upon a time that was totally not legal. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I wish I, I wish they didn't pass law. Insofar as it's nice to do something positive, I'm glad they kind of amended it a little bit. But yeah, I think they would have been way smarter just to not bother with it at all. Like, it, what what does it really do? Like, as a business owner, didn't I already have some right to to refuse customers if I if I really needed to? Like, I can just choose not to take a job. It's really meant, I, I thought it was really meant to try to stop, um, try to enforce, quote unquote, smaller government by making it harder to pass laws that may, in, may be argued to infringe on religious liberties. Although it also yeah. then puts religious liberties above other ones in some ways. I think it was about 98% uh, political football where uh, politicians try to score points with their conservative base. Exactly. Specifically, there were rumors that this particular governor was potentially going to be making a bid for president. So it's possible that he was not expecting this to blow up and was, as Jeff was saying, trying to appease his his conservative base before he went and made a presidential bid. It would be very interesting to see if he did that now, though. Sam Dillon, what do you think about this, uh, this issue? What do you think about the Gen Con reaction? If I recall correctly, Gen Con just recently had renegotiated their contract. Mm. Um, uh, they, they just negotiated so, like a short extension. Uh, usually they negotiate their contracts like 15, 20 years at a time, and they, they negotiated like a five-year extension. Um, but I do recall that when they were doing that, they had considered other areas, but ultimately the other areas were either A, not equipped for such a large convention, um, and th- basically the gist was, if you think the housing situation in Indy sucks, imagine what it'll be in Podunk Town, right? Um, and the second thing was, Indianapolis happens to be the the point that is the closest for some some large proportion of their of the attendees. Um, so they chose to stay. The problem is, as soon as this becomes such a politicized issue, we forget that it's about real people and we suddenly only think about it in the political terms that are yammering in our ears and showing up in front of our eyes on on the news feeds and on Facebook and on everything else. The whole issue is, is very ridiculous to me. I mean, I'm sorry. It's it's absolutely ridiculous to to some extent. I was under the impression that the main portion of the bill was to make it so that stores and and different distributors and whatnot would have the ability to defend themselves in court if they were sued for refusing to provide a service to uh, a a non-protected class of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't necessarily meant to be used to, you know, it wasn't directly meant to be used to let them deny service. It was meant as an indirect way to defend themselves if they were sued for being for denying service, which, okay, see, this is where the political BS comes in because that's the same thing. Right. You know, that's what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> it's the same thing. I don't know. The whole thing is just ridiculous. Now, as far as Gen Con's response, I, 
think that they made entirely the right choice. They came out strong. They said, look, we completely disagree with this entire thing. The Indianapolis mayor came out and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. A bunch of companies came out and said, this is horrible. We're going to stop you know, doing whatever we were doing previously to support the state. We're not going to support the state anymore. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a business consequence to Gen Con's decisions and they can't just up and move. It's impossible right now for Gen Con 2015, but it's also pretty much impossible for Gen Con 2016. I mean, these look, I have, I'm in the middle right now of helping to put together and host a very small convention academic, you know, thing for my job. And it's, a crap ton of work. <laughs> they the the work for planning Gen Con usually starts about five years in advance. So, or or at least right. for finding locations right. or whatever. So, the soonest they could move is, yeah. is five years from now. I mean, look, here's the reality of it. I just recently I was on a task force that planned a a a one a day long convention, a day long conference that had sixty attendees. Okay, we spent a year and a half planning mm-hmm. for sixty attendees. I'm sorry, people who think Gen Con didn't go far enough, you go schedule something for 50,000 people and see how well you do in three months. It's just not possible. Yeah. So I think Gen Con did the right thing. They came out strong. They they made their feelings and their thoughts and their position extremely clear. I'm really sorry that some people didn't, you know, don't understand that they can't just pick up and move at the drop of a hat. Because uh, there are some people who were really upset that 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 Gen Con kind of stepped back and said, okay, well, actually, we're not leaving, you know, right now. We can't. But let's be honest, they can't. They literally cannot. So they did come out with a second statement that said, you know, I'm really happy they're amending things, um, but we're still, you know, considering not not staying in Indy. The big question that on everybody's mind is, okay, so let's say they decide to leave. Where should they go? You know, <laughs> yeah. wh- where is Gen Con going to go? Like we talked about the, the issue of they can't go to a smaller venue, right? They have to go to someplace that has more housing than what Indianapolis has near the convention center or a good mass transit system. They have a history of being uh, based in the Midwest. I mean, Gen Con's always been based in the Midwest. It's gone from Lake Geneva to Milwaukee to Indianapolis. Um, you know, I don't know how important it is that they stay that way. So, so where could they go? I'm just curious what, what the panel here thinks tonight. And they have the added restriction that um, Indian, Indiana is not the only state with a religious freedom law. I mean, there are certainly places that are equipped for very big conventions. Part of, I think, what makes it difficult is those places are more expensive than Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. So your your New Yorks, your Los Angeleses, your San Francisco's, right? Uh, that's a tough but, but, question. But, but none of them are Midwestern either, so you lose that element of Gen Con. You do. Chicago, but... Oh. Yeah, I mean, Chicago surprisingly does doesn't have a lot in terms of um hotel space, uh, mm-hmm. especially uh especially affordable hotel space um for conventions. So, I honestly, I don't think Chicago could handle it. Being a Chicago land native, um <laughs> I'm speaking from experience. I'm not being entirely ignorant here. Um but I I was going to say that I, I think that places like Las Vegas and, and San Diego um, are, are probably places that can handle it. But Orlando. honestly, uh, yeah, but I, I think the the part about it being a Midwest based conference is some uh, convention rather is is something that they they could lose a lot of a lot of goodwill and and a lot of their attendees by moving it out there. So 
I, I do not envy the folks that have to make that decision. I guess that's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, just because I went to a tech conference there last year, I really hope they don't move to Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't I don't know if um, people who've made that suggestion and I feel like a lot of the people who made the suggestion uh, haven't been there for like a conference because like the thing is, is all the hotels are set up that you have to pretty much walk. But mm-hmm. It is hard to get to your room and not walk through part of the uh, gambling mm-hmm. floor. Liz Tice, um, what do you think about this issue overall? And what did you think about the Gen Con reaction? I was I was not happy when I saw it. Um, I honestly being a history major with a, with a focus on uh, Middle Eastern studies, my, my initial reaction was, Oh goodness. Now another reason to discriminate against that community, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the Middle Eastern community, um, Muslim community. And then I, I sort of started hearing uh, people chatting about the other aspects of it, specifically with, with Gen Con. I was very proud of Gen Con for saying something. I'm still not a fan of the law, um, even after the addendum. There's been a number of people, and maybe I'm a little bit more um, aware of it being in the industry, but there's been a number of people calling on companies that are going to Gen Con saying, I can't believe you're going to Gen Con, you shouldn't go. The moment companies start pulling out of Gen Con, Gen Con loses their leverage to to enforce any change. That that's one thing that I I didn't really think about until I started started seeing it, but it's a it's a side of it that I hadn't really thought of until I started seeing it. Role-playing game companies aren't raking in the big bucks for the most part. Even even the really huge ones, and Gen Con is a great chance for tabletop companies who make board games and role-playing games and stuff to show off their wares and get some buzz and that kind of thing. And if the con isn't going to move, uh, it's hard for them to uh, cover their costs and stuff and, and make up for money elsewhere. And as Jeff has pointed out, a lot of people already have their hotel rooms and their travel and everything booked. So the, the state of Indiana already has your money. Uh, and there are a fair amount of people in Indiana. I've seen a lot of small business owners saying, you know, we don't, our business does not discriminate. So please come here and, and keep supporting the small businesses. Like Sam said, the people that are already established there, it's far more complex than lumping all of Indiana into one box. (laughs) Let's talk about our second topic. Mike Merles has said that there is a wait for conversion documents uh, at least about four months or so. He had said this on Twitter, and we will, of course, link to this in the show notes, as well as all the other stuff we were talking about earlier, uh, that the person who needs to do final approvals on the official conversion documents to convert things from earlier editions of D&D to 5th edition is serving on a jury duty, and that will take another four months. Sorry. Here is my question. (laughs) Are things so small there that if one person is out of the game for a little while, that everything on particular projects comes screeching to a halt? That, especially something like conversion documents, yeah, conversion documents are important, and we want them, and that's why we're talking about this, but at the same time, does that need, like, the highest level of sign-off? And if it does, is the highest level of sign-off not Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford, who appear to be doing their work every day and tweeting and writing articles and stuff? So what, what is happening that uh, that could delay this. Uh, one person in jury duty is is delaying all of this progress. Uh, it seems uh, crazy to me. 
Uh, Liz, you're in the business and you work for a small company. Um, could you see something like this happening at Lone Wolf? I, I absolutely could. Um, it, <laughs> I saw it and went, yep, I can see that. Um, <laughs> so I'm the opposite end of the spectrum from you, James. Oh, that's um, good. That's good to know. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, one, one thing that I think, um, I've learned a lot working in a small company and I I've had experience working in, you know, a fortune 100 company. So it's sort of seen all ends. Right. And when you're in a small company, there's a lot of knowledge that one person, um, if you're lucky, two people have, um, and that knowledge transfer can take a lot of time. So it, they might've looked at it and said, yeah, we could, we could have someone else do this, but it's going to take us you know, X amount of time to do it. And they have a job too with, um, uh, you know, really important responsibilities that if they take the time to, to learn all of this new stuff and then work on the conversion to- um, documents, all of this other stuff is going to have to wait probably three to four months. They might've just looked at it and said, you know what? Yes, conversion documents are a priority, but looking at the work that we're going to lose by putting someone else's focus on it, it's it's just not what the business needs at this time. That's actually really good for me to hear because I've only worked for uh, very large companies most of my life. So, uh, and, and you're right that maybe because these are deemed less important, they have put their energies onto uh, other things. Uh, Tracy, you've uh, worked with Watsi before. Uh, does this all make sense to you? I mean, given what I know about the current structure, I think it makes some sense to me. Uh, I kind of had wanted to start, except I only really caught up on it today. I was like, maybe I should ask my friends uh, who's the one on jury duty. But um, <laughs> it also seems, I, uh, with the cynical part of me, it's like, well, maybe they actually, like, maybe it's a convenient excuse sort of thing, too. But I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But so... Are these coming out as PDFs? Uh, I don't know that they've officially said, but I think that's everyone's assumption is that they're coming yeah. out as PDFs. Yeah, because I, I kind of don't get it quite as much if it's if it's going to be free content versus... Like, if it's paid, I could kind of understand it more. Uh, but if it was free, you could just re-update it. <laughs> <laughs> Although I know I know they don't want to be responsible if things aren't quite working right. Sam, what do you think of all this? I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, honestly... <laughs> I'm sorry. Who cares about conversion documents? Aww. I saw I some the people same complaining. Opinion, Sam. <laughs> I, I I heard some people complaining that they need to convert some second edition stuff to fifth edition, and I'm like, I'm sorry. That is so easy. It's not that hard. It should not. That should not be a game breaker. If your game, if you're waiting for the conversion document to go, move your group from second edition to fifth edition. I don't know what to tell you. Just stay at second edition. You know what I mean? Like it, the the biggest conversion you will ever have to do is going to be fourth edition because it's the sort of redheaded stepchild of editions. It works completely differently from every other every other edition that we've had. I, mean, I, could, I could see old first and, and second being significantly different. You know, it's not D20 and all that. Um, ah, but they're not really. I mean, that's really the but, only but, difference. But ultimately, I don't know that matters. Like, designing for fifth edition is simple, and you well, have enough of a structure. Yeah. That, so just, so yeah. just design something exactly. that works the same. That's that's my point. Well, just, just port it right over. It's not that hard. To be honest, what I am, I would really like them for, uh, for fourth, 
um, because I do feel like I have so many, especially in recently fourth edition resources that it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it'd be cool to do this. It'd be cool to do that. And fourth is a little trickier. Um, and I think a lot of people want to convert the mechanics they created for fourth or the things that the mm-hmm. monsters they created, that kind of thing. And those guidelines definitely help. They're not, I agree with you and I agree with Jeff, they're not a hundred percent necessary. But in my mind, hopefully they would at least speed things up. And I think if you have a large library that of stuff that you want to convert over, it certainly helps to have those documents. Well, and, and historically, conversion documents, honestly, have completely sucked anyways. And yeah, then, and that's been really the other reason I don't care. And impossible. I mean, <laughs> I, I converted a, a third edition adventure during the playtest to fifth edition on the fly. Like with no, I, mean, I started doing prep, and then after a while, it's like, you know what? I can pretty much just do this. You know, uh, and it worked fine. I didn't. Have, I never had an issue with it. Um, you know, and third edition is maybe is the easiest one to convert because it's it's the most similar at its core. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I didn't. Conversion documents historically are horrible anyway. So if they don't ha- get them out to me, if they don't want to spend the time and money and resources on it. I'd rather have them do something that's going to actually be better. If they want to give some tips and advice on how to how to make something in fifth edition so that it it, it feels like um, what you're looking for to convert your adventure yourself. I think that's fun. I think that's a good idea. I think you know they should put something like that in, out or in in the DMG. Not that they can now, but still, um, you know, I think that's more useful than than conversion documents, which almost always suck. Let's roll the interview with Keith Baker, creator of Eberron and Phoenix Dawn Command. Hey, everybody! I am here with Keith Baker, who is, of course, the creator of the Gloom card game and Eberron. And a lot of other things that you love, including the Phoenix Dawn Command uh, Kickstarter and game, which has uh, just gotten underway here. Keith, how are you today? I am doing great. Glad to be here. Keith, it's great to have you. So as of the time of this recording, uh, you're looking for $38,500, and you're about 10 k away from that goal, uh, only three days into the Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly don't want to jinx you, but I'll just say <laughs> that things look pretty good. Um, and, uh, and you were recently selected as a Kickstarter staff pick, so congratulations on that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it certainly is, you know, we had a fantastic first day and we're slowing it down a little, which is to be expected. You know, part of the thing is, especially for a role-playing game, it is a high goal, mm-hmm. uh, but it is also a game that is uh, unfortunately very expensive to produce. You know, essentially when you're looking at what you have sitting in front of you, it is the equivalent of having four decks of tarot cards uh, and, and then, you know, 120 page, uh, paperback dropped on top of that. So, you know, toss a copy of fiasco onto your, your four tarot (laughs) decks. And that's basically what we're looking at. So, um, you know, we basically set the goal where we knew this is what we need to make, uh, an initial run of the game. So we've got a little bit to go, but I feel good about it. And, uh, I'm, you know, mainly just comfortable that that's what we need to make it happen. Well, talk to me a little bit about Phoenix Dawn Command. Sell the people out here. Uh, I've already made my pledge, uh, but uh, but sell the people out here. Tell them uh, what makes this game unique. You mentioned the card aspect, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and also you know Phoenix Dawn Command. Uh, that is very telling in one of the big mechanics in the game, right? It is indeed. 
So one of the things that's a little tricky is we call it a card-based role-playing game, and a lot of people assume that means it's something like, say, the Pathfinder Adventure card game, where it's a card game. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It is definitely a role-playing game in which you have a game master guiding a group of players through a story. Uh, it is simply that we use cards to resolve actions instead of dice. And so Phoenix Dawn Command is set in a fantasy world. Another thing people sometimes assume is that it's modern day. And so it's a unique fantasy world. And that world is basically after centuries of of, uh, essentially peace, uh, suddenly facing a massive wave of supernatural uh, horrors that are just sort of manifesting all around uh, the empire. And basically, we don't know why these things are happening. We don't know how they even relate to each other. You know, we have this undead army advancing from the south. We have, uh, you know, hauntings, werewolves, this chant that causes people who hear it to, to become homicidal. Are these things even related to one another or is the world just falling apart? You know, all we really know is basically we seem to be at war and we're losing because normal people can't face these things. So the only thing we have going for us are the phoenixes. And phoenixes are people who have died and then come back charged with supernatural power. Uh, And as a phoenix, you know, first off, you now have the power to face some of these threats that normal mortals can't. And the biggest part about it, as you said, is that part of being a phoenix means that When you die, you come back stronger than before. You basically can return up to seven times, and each time you return, you come back with greater power. And essentially, death is the way in which a character improves in this game. Um, That is something that affects things in lots of different ways. You know, one of the main things I, I point out to people is this isn't just like, oh, I'm playing a video game and I have seven lives. Um... One of the things is that you don't come back right away and you don't come back where you died. And most of the missions are very high tension, very time sensitive. So we're dropping you in this old tenement uh, because there's an outbreak of the chant, this thing that spreads and causes people here to go crazy. And it's basically, can you stop this before it gets out? And if you can, it doesn't matter how many of you die in the process. But if you fail, if you all die without completing the mission, by the time you come back, it's too late. We've lost that city now. Mm. And, you know, now you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that because, hey, you're still alive. Um, So again, it's not that death, that the ability to return from death removes tension. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's still a question, you know, really what happens is it's that the missions you're on, are more important than your own life, if you see what I'm saying. And so it all comes down to, is this a point where it is worth making a sacrifice? You know, is this the time that it makes sense for me to lay my life down? And one of the examples I like to give is if you look to Lord of the Rings with um, the Mines of Moriah, that's very much something you could say, change the setup of why they're there. And just say, okay, you've been sent because there's something going on there. We've lost contact with this mine. We need you to check it out. Run into orcs. You can handle orcs. You are badasses. You can beat the crap out of a whole pile of orcs. Run into a troll. Ooh, that's that's tougher, but you're still badasses. So, you know, someone's going to get pretty beat up in the process. You run into the Balrog, and 
you cannot win against that. It is now simply a question of can any of you get out alive with the information? Mm-hmm. And that this is a game in which one of you saying, I will hold this bridge, the rest of you go, is actually a valid choice to make. And the thing is, in the average game, that's not. You know, I never design a adventure for D&D where one of the characters simply, you know, pretty much is going to have to throw their life away. No. And so that's what I love about Phoenix is someone asked, could you just play Phoenix and Eberron? Mm-hmm. And the point to me is, it's not that you couldn't. It's that part of what makes the Phoenix system work is that the situation is so dire that A, we expect a couple of you to die in any given adventure, and B, that it feels like that's worth doing. Uh, so you could do it at Emberon, but you'd have to create a scenario where the stakes were that high. It's not just like saying, oh, it's D&D, but you know, every time you die, you come back to life, because in well, D&D, usually death isn't you know, that on the table. And that's the other point I would make is in designing adventures, you know, when I design a, a typical dungeon, I'm making it where I feel the players have at least a fairly good chance. In Phoenix, it's quite the reverse. The odds are usually very high against you, and you have to make sacrifices to to succeed. And it's all a question of when's the right time, you know, to to lay things down. It sounds like big, heroic, epic gameplay in, in that case. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of times... Um, when I'm playing something like D&D, it's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be so cool. But really, they'd rather run away and hold on to the lives of their characters than well, lay down the life because that's not the expectation, you know? Right, exactly. And that's one of the things we have to actually tell people when they're playing Phoenix is one thing to remember is basically we're going to get to cards in a moment. If you have this hand of cards that determines what you're capable of at any given time, uh, the Game Master doesn't have cards of their own effectively if you flipped it into D, the game master never rolls a die mm. the game master tells the player i choose i've got my balrog here i choose who he's going to attack i chose what kind of attack he's going to do but then i'm going to tell you okay he's swinging that whip at you and it's an attack with a value of 20 and then the question is can you play what you need uh to avoid that And, um, but the thing is when you play cards in defense, you're giving up cards that you can later use to take an action. And one of the things we actually point out to people a lot in Phoenix in their first game or two is remember protecting yourself is not the most important thing in this game, because if you're schooled in most other role-playing games, you think, well, the most important thing I need to do is make sure I keep myself alive. And here we have to say, not necessarily, you know? (laughs) But it also comes to that point of what the cards do, having a hand of cards instead of dice. It still has a point of randomness because I'm drawing cards from my deck. So, you know, at any given time, I have a random assortment of cards, but it means you know what you are capable of at any given moment. So when we see the Balrog and I say, I am going to, you know, make a dramatic speech about all my friends who have died and I'm going to charge at him and I'm going to use my biggest attack and just, you know, spin in the, in a, in his face. You know that you're not going to roll a one. Mm-hmm. You know that if you, you plan this big heroic moment, well, you know, from looking at your cards, can you actually pull it off? Um, 
And conversely, you may look at your cards and say, I can't. And what that means is, well, don't do the big heroic moment here. You know, see what else you can do. What is something smaller you can accomplish this round? But it definitely means you don't have that moment when your paladin makes the huge dramatic thing and then rolls a one. <laughs> so the the other thing, you know, basically the way I like to say it is it's a little more that the players have a little more sort of sense of narrative control of you know what you're capable of and you know how this scene can play out. You know, one of the things that I really like about this is you mentioned that uh, you can come back seven times. Um, so because there's that limited number on it, I know we talked about in a lot of RPGs, you're protecting yourself, but there's also no limit to the number of times you can come back. So at higher levels, when you do have access to those true resurrection spells and everything, you could theoretically just keep coming back over and over again. And, and that's exactly my thing is that in a lot of existing games, either death is the very end, in which case it's really not on the table, you know, or if it is, you never get a strong attachment to your character. Or once you have access to resurrection magic, or like in your typical MMO, it's essentially meaningless because all it is is essentially a time delay. You know, I'm in the penalty box until the cleric can cast the spell. The point in Phoenix is yes, you will come back. And in fact, you'll come back stronger, but only seven times. So it means you can be pretty reckless early on, but the more power you get, you know, and then that's sort of part of the thing is in the beginning, you don't have as many tools, but what's the worst that can happen as you go on and learn more about how to play? Well, now you have more powerful tools, but now you don't want to just throw your life away so casually. Exactly. So even though every time you, you die, you grow stronger, you also kind of want to hold off because you only have a limited number of times that you get to live. What we've always said is it's basically, you know, death is the advancement mechanic. Death is something you shouldn't be afraid of, but you also want to make sure each death means something. And that's also important because actually the abilities you gain, uh, the way in which your character grows stronger, uh, is basically based on why did you die? What are the lessons you're taking away? So anytime you die, and that essentially, it's the equivalent of saying, you know, for us, it's schools. We have six schools with different sorts of abilities. The Durant, uh, who is basically about survival and is the hardest to kill. You know, the Devoted, who is about sacrificing for others, who's the sort of support strengthening class. Uh, You know, the Bitter, who basically dies as a failure, and they are all about sort of vengeance. And the more they're hurt, the stronger they become. Um, and, you know, essentially as, as, you know, you could say this is sort of like our version of class. Uh, but the point is, again, when you die, we're going to say, well, what kind of death was that? Why did you die? You know, were you, was it just, you weren't tough enough? Was it that you sacrificed to protect others? Uh, was it, you were trying to find something out and pursuing a secret or, you know, did you just fail? And so as your character grows, it really is a reflection of sort of all those deaths that you've had. So rather than choosing, oh, now I'm going to take a level of thief and now I'm going to take a level of fighter and and that sort of thing, how you play the game also determines how you advance. Exactly. And so that's back to that choosing your death. There's also a point to saying, is this the death I want to have? If you see what I'm saying. And this is one of the questions of, uh, well, can my character just jump in front of a truck a bunch and become more powerful? 
And A, part of the point is um, that, again, it's that limited resource that are you, you know, would you want to spend it that way just to get a boop bump, uh, you know, a few bumps up the ladder, especially since you're just moving yourself closer to being dead. Uh, and B, yeah, well, make me a case for how that's the kind of death you wanted. You know, if you were looking to get some Durant levels, eh, I don't, I don't see that really, that really being that kind of death. That's cool. So when you level up, uh, what makes you more powerful? Are do you have a character sheet that there are stats on? Do you add more cards yeah. to your deck? How does that work? So that's the thing. Uh, what you have is a deck of cards. A few of those cards are laid out in front of you and are your ongoing abilities. These are called lessons. So these are the things you can always do. Um, and then you have a deck of cards that you are drawing from. So at any given time, you have a hand of around five cards that are your actions you take on the spur of the moment. So these are the action cards. Um, some of these are just sort of a base, hey, I'm a strength four. You know, they are just sort of your raw capabilities. And then others are what we call traits. And traits both have some special ability, you know, something cool that happens when you use it. They also have traits that describe your character. So for example, I might have that I'm sneaky or that I'm vengeful, or that I've seen this before is one of my favorite traits. <laughs> and essentially, when you are trying to take an action, if you can explain how that trait applies to the action, so how is it you've seen this before, or how is being sneaky helping you here, uh, then you can add it on and it's often worth extra points. So that's where you get some of the narrative into it is you're encouraged, you know, this comes into sort of, you know, almost a touch of gloom. You don't have to play, you know, to tell a story, to add sneaky to something. But if you do, and you can explain to me why being sneaky matters, then it's worth more. Um, but coming back to your question, so when I die, I get extra cards, both a new lesson, a new trait, and an extra card relating to the school that I, uh, I am moving up in. So my deck gets better. Nice, nice. That is really cool. Well, on that subject of cards, mm -hmm. uh, we covered this a little bit last time you were on the Tome Show because you you were talking about card games and everything. Um, mm -hmm. I can already hear, though, that there are people out there worried that they are going to have to buy a bunch of booster packs after they get mm -hmm. the game mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, that is not actually the case, right? That is not the case. So the basic game gives you everything you need for four players to play. Um, it is the case that, um, we would certainly like to provide some extra high level cards and just more options. So if the game does well, I think there's certainly room for an expansion, if you will. Uh, but basically it's not collectible at all. You know, it is entirely, uh, you know, as I said, the base game gives you what you need to play with four people. Sure, and if I want to get the expansion, I get everything. I don't have to go hunting around for this. No, no, absolutely, cards. absolutely no. We have no intention at all of doing any kind of collectible type thing. Part of it also is, you know, we're a small company and we're not trying to do anything that's that terribly complicated, mm -hmm. you know. So we're making one thing, uh, we're making it well, and if it does well, then we'll make a, you know, as I said, a second thing, give you more monsters, more options. Well, and let's talk about a little bit about what this game looks like at the start. So you said mm -hmm. that the choices you make obviously determine your progression as a character, how you die, uh, yep. when you choose to die, and that sort of thing. But what does it look like if I have not died at all? 
you know, I'm sitting down mm-hmm. to play my mm-hmm. first game. So you're sitting down. There's actually uh, uh, a guy named Richard Malena has put up on YouTube a video that walks you through character creation in Phoenix. Nice. Uh, I think if you just go on YouTube and look up character creation in Phoenix Dawn Command, you'll find it. Uh, but basically, the way character creation works is um, you choose your school. You know, what's your base school that you're from? Uh, and you choose a number of traits, you know, basically for each uh, type of suit. So, for example, if I'm Durant, I have strength and grace are the two core suits for me. I would choose two traits from each school. That gets me my core deck and and. Durant gives me the core lessons that I lay out in front of me. So I have these couple things that are the abilities I have at all times, and I have my deck of cards. Now, one of the things you do do, you have a character sheet, but it doesn't have stats at all. It basically just has recording which traits you got, uh, and it asks you questions. It is basically, how did you die? You know, who were you in your first life when you weren't a phoenix? How did you die? which is essentially why are you the school that you are and what gave you the strength to come back? Because in Phoenix, you don't just die and pop back. It's not sort of a free thing. It is that you go through this sort of grueling set of spiritual trials and it's what gave you the determination, the strength to make it through that. And this is theoretically how your character is growing stronger is that each time you die, you spend an indeterminate amount of time in limbo going through spiritual boot camp, you know, and honing your abilities. Um, So with Phoenix, as I said, you've got this world gripped by this terrible, uh, you know, dread. And one of the core questions is, how is this affecting you? What have you lost? What was it that killed you? Why are you back? And what are you trying to accomplish? So one of the core things to us is trying to make sure every character has a sense of attachment to the story from the start. And that is one other thing I really like about Phoenix is you have a sense of purpose. There is no question of why are these four people here and why do we need to go into this dungeon again? You know, this is a a world that is on the brink of destruction and you are here to do your best to turn the tide. Uh, it comes with a, a story. The The whole box comes with like a seven mission yeah. arc. Uh, that's yes. really great. What happens once you are done those missions? Can the mm-hmm. GM create more adventures? And I know that absolutely. some of your stretch goals, it seems like, will be extra missions. Uh, absolutely. And some of are, are, them are extra missions. Some of them are just actually extra things, like extra creatures mm-hmm. that you can build missions around. Uh, first off, even within the seven mission arc that we have, Uh, Basically, between each mission, one of the things that happens with Phoenixes is they essentially have the ability from their home base on this place called Pyre to to teleport you out to certain points in the world. So they can sort of send you deep into trouble spots, but they can't bring you back. Um, You know, this is a relatively low magic world. So, you know, again, the ability to just send you someplace is somewhat remarkable for this place. But they can't bring you back. So anytime you're dropped in a place, you then have to make your way back from there. Mm. And so one of the things we do at the end of every mission is basically provide a set of sort of plot hooks that are basically, well, what if you wanted to play this out more? 
What if you wanted to stick around in this area for a few more days? What if you wanted to, you know, on your way back, what are things that you might encounter? And these are intended as things that the game master could just talk through with the players. Let's talk about what happens when you get to that village or that they could form the basis for a whole second adventure. If you see what I'm saying next week, instead of a new mission, we're going to deal with your trip back. Beyond that, certainly the manual sort of guides people in how to create new missions of their own. And even though the game will only ship essentially with a certain set of creature cards, Mm -hmm. first, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, essentially I'm using these in different configurations. Right. Uh, And second, because the creature cards aren't mixed into a deck the way player cards are, you know, there's nothing stopping a game master from just making their own creatures. If you say I'm saying they won't have the cool art that we get uh, on our creature cards. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it is certainly the case the game master can just make new things up. It just sounds like an awesome game. I really can't wait to get my hands on it. I love this idea, uh, you know, of uh, death being a limited number of times, but each time you're more powerful. I love the way it sounds like the card decks work and everything. Um, it sounds like a really, really great way to get together and tell a story with some friends. What is the world like in Phoenix Dawn Command? You mentioned it's low magic mm-hmm. and there are all these threats and everything. Right. So the point in Phoenix, you know, because again, world creation, and it's something we haven't gotten that deep into uh, in what we've revealed yet. It's something I want to do more of over the course of the Kickstarter so people get a sense of it. Um, it's a smaller world than Eberron. You know, essentially we have only one continent in, you know, that we know of and a number of island chains around it. Part of the point is anytime anyone sailed off the horizon, they've never come back. So as people on this world, we don't actually know, is the earth flat? Is it filled with sea serpents in the deep waters? Or is there a really awesome continent next door that nobody comes back from? But essentially the known world is a fairly contained place. Um, within that, this is a world in which magic is part of the world, but basically when the first phoenixes came to power, uh, they essentially suppressed a lot of it. You know, magic is a very dangerous force in this world, you know, sort of it's the magic has its price sort of thing. And so when the first phoenixes rose to power and sort of united the known world into what we call the empire, um, they basically stopped people from using a lot of the, the magic that had been out there. Then over time, the common folk essentially turned on the phoenixes, essentially saying, well, yeah, you know, great. It's nice that, that we have this unified structure, but we don't really like having immortal overlords. Hmm. And there was this bloody civil war and the phoenixes stepped down at the end of it, saying we don't want to basically be slaughtering people. Um, and then over the course of the next hundred years, the phoenixes basically stopped returning. Essentially, the empire didn't need them. And so that's where you have this world where magic was part of the world. Um, but again, over the last couple of hundred years, we've had sort of a you know quiet golden age. And now suddenly, over the course of the last three years, we've had this successively increasing range of supernatural attacks. As I said, we have an army in the South that is basically the remains of dead soldiers in the Civil War who have gotten back up and are now marching north and no one's been able to stop them. 
you know, we have this chant that drives everyone who hears it crazy that just starts in places and we don't know why or what it has to do with anything. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, overall, we call this the dread, but the main point is we don't know that the dread is really one thing. As the time the game opens, the basically about a third of the map has fallen to the dread. Whoa. And but over the course of the last three years, phoenixes have started to return again. So that's where you come in. You were basically a new phoenix. You know, at this point, phoenixes have essentially just been legends. We're saying it's, you know, it's a little like, well, what if King Arthur suddenly showed up at the Pentagon saying he wanted to help? <laughs> you know, well, you know, the legend said he would come back when he was needed. You know, um, and so that's part of the point of the game, too, is how you interact. You know, phoenixes are not actually part of the Imperial Army, Mm -hmm. and there's not very many of them. And it's, you know, sort of, so you're almost more this sort of resistance movement than you are sort of part of a government, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's Um, amazing. and, And that's part of the campaign. You know, with the campaign, the idea is that as it opens... And it's something where I see sort of multiple acts long term. The issue is we don't understand the dread and phoenixes are just coming back. And it's sort of a, we can drop you out in places and, you know, hopefully you can at least stop bad things that are happening. But more important than that is, can you understand it? Because otherwise all you're doing is putting out fires without knowing why the fires are starting. Um, So there are these sort of bigger pictures. And as I said, the bones, the army approaching from the South, where it is just, no one's figured out how to stop these things. You kill them and they just end up piecing themselves back together and getting back up. And so that's this sort of slow threat. that They're just moving north. And, you know, we're talking about armies of tens of thousands, you know, where, hey, there's only four of you. You're not going to stop them. So there are these bigger things going on in the world uh, that it's all a question of how your small actions can affect. Plus that, as I said, magic is something that was largely suppressed. So now there's also sort of old magic. Also, some people are delving into it to try and deal with the dread themselves. Some of the dread threats maybe affect, you know, sort of tied to old magic. And so part of it is also discovering more about the world and about the things that have sort of been pushed down into the shadows. Wow. So let's talk then a little bit about the Kickstarter for this game, because I think people sure are on board now. They've, they've heard you. You've sold them. You've sold me. What, what do they get? What um, should they expect from this Kickstarter? Uh, it mm-hmm. looks like there are. this is a really high-quality game. There's a lot of stuff in this box. The art is awesome, really fun, really distinct. So uh, talk to me about the different pledge levels and stuff and uh, what people want to do if they can get to get hands on the game. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly straightforward. You know, I mean, part of the thing is we're not throwing in tons and tons of options because we just want to make sure we do this and we do it well. You know, we're not uh, everything we've done. You know, the game, we've been testing it for over a year. Uh, We have about 90 percent of our art in hand. You know, this is something where we're not just starting this we're almost at the end of it. And, you know, we're not going to suddenly add in a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know how long it would take us to make, or that would increase our costs or things like that. You know, we're basically just making sure we can make this game. Uh, So the core game is $50. You know, it is a high price point, but again, it's 280 cards and they're tarot cards. So they're, they're large, which 
really to us suggest these are things you're dealing with a lot. It gives a nice sort of sense of weight to the, uh, to the product. And those include uh, the actions and lesson cards that the players use, uh, essentially, you know, the menagerie of threats that the, the game master draws on. Um, and then you also have a little sort of pile of tokens that are used to sort of track things that happen to people. Uh, and your sort of energy, you basically have a pool of magical energy, which are called sparks, and a uh, set of tokens that represent your health. And if either of those run out, you die. Um, but basically $50 gets you that box, which is the cards, it's the counters, and then it's the, you know, the, the book that both describes the rules and the setting. And then we'll be getting you seven, you know, seven ready-to-go missions. Um, so that's all for $50 and moving up from there, uh, the main thing we have is we have an upper level that is, um, myself and, and my fellow designer, Dan will be doing a series of online seminars. So one is just going to be on world design. I love discussing world design and all the theories about it. So just a sort of little workshop on, you know, how do you design a world? Where do you start? What are different approaches? What should you be thinking about? Um, so I'm going to do that. That will be undoubtedly before the game launches. And then once the game does launch, we're going to have one that is really aimed at game masters talking about creating, you know, how to create your own missions, things about running the game. And another will really be aimed more at players and just talking about uh, you know, strategies, creating interesting characters and things to, to think about uh, from that perspective. And that's the next level uh, up from just the game itself. Um, moving up from there, we have chances, you know, we had one that was basically a chance to sort of get on a card, but those are all gone. <laughs> um, but there's still a few that are basically once it's done, we'll ask you a bunch of questions, you know, get a bunch of stuff to work with, and then we'll help. Basically we'll develop a story for your character. You know, we'll give you a tragic backstory uh, and sort of that, you know, really ties you into the world. And then those are characters we may use in other sort of Phoenix material. Since part of the point of it is that you aren't the only Phoenixes, you know, there's about a hundred Phoenixes out there. And so this is the chance to say, okay, well, if you're a Maverick, this is goose you know, or Iceman. Um, and, you know, so we'll be using these, uh, these characters as sort of supporting cast and things to come. Um, there's still a few of those left. And then the other really high levels are, you know, come out to Portland and play a game with me or me coming out and uh, visiting you somewhere and playing a game, you know, running a game for you. We'll see if anyone goes for those. Wow. So uh, what's really impressive about this to me, is that um, $50, it's mm -hmm. the price of one D&D &D core rulebook. Um, yeah. You know, and you get a whole game, cards, counters, the whole nine, the rulebook, and everything for that amount, uh, which is pretty great. For 125 you get a personal world-building lesson from Keith Baker that you can go back to anytime. Um, that is true. You know, 
this is the guy who made Eberron, guys. He made Eberron. He can build some worlds. <laughs> and and this is the point to me is that's the thing is it is like fifty dollars to many people feels like ooh that's big, but yeah, when you compare it to all the things out there, or even just going out and having a nice dinner, uh, and they say this is all you need to you know not only have the seven missions there, but to go beyond that. Oh, sure. um, you know, it is a full open ended. Uh, game system. Yeah, it's it's so. one video game that you might play <laughs> for twenty hours and never pick up again. This you could play forever over with with four of your friends. So yeah, again, it's everything you need to to back the whole group, as it were. Yeah. So and it sounds like it may be a great um, RPG for people who have never played before. That is actually something that we found. You know, the system is very flexible. You know, the core mechanic is essentially tell me what you want to do. And there are different sort of things based on is this an attack? Is it a defense? Is it neither of those, you know, which we call skills. Uh, but basically, you tell me what you want to do. As the game master, I'm going to say, well, this is what kind of spread that is. And this is the target you need to make. And um, so it's a very you know, at its core, a very simple, basic mechanic. And the other thing is that pretty much everything you need to know is right in front of you. This is what I've got in my hand that tells me what I can do right now. These are my abilities in front of you. And so what we found, I've in our playtests run a lot of games with people who have never even roleplayed at all. And the thing is, because they don't have that sense of, oh, there's this whole rule book that I should have read, or there's this thing I didn't know about, or what about attacks of opportunity, or things like that. What I need to know is right in front of me mm-hmm. that a lot of them find it less intimidating. And similarly, things like the traits where we say, so you're sneaky. Tell me how being sneaky matters here. Uh, it's a little like gloom. It helps people who might not normally tell stories have this little hook. Well, I can explain how I'm being sneaky. That's not so hard. So, you know, it helps draw people out a little. And again, you don't have to, but hey, if you can, <laughs> then you're going to have things a little better off. Um, and there's a bunch of other mechanics in the game like that and advice we give to game masters that are really about basically, you know, collaborate with the players, draw them into describing things. Little thing, but for example, if you're fighting a mob of zombies, I like to say, you know, ask each player to describe one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, what what catches their eye? Because this is a mob of villagers that have all been turned into zombies. So, you know, well, look, there's like an old blacksmith and he's still carrying a broken hammer. Or, you know, there's a child who's still dragging their teddy bear. Or, you know, basically the point is when instead of just saying it's a mob or even me just naming those things, I say, you, James, what do you see in that mob of zombies? Oh, that's awesome. And that way, then, when I'm describing the attacks and your attacks and things like that, I'm going to work those into it. And it's a way to just help the players really visualize this and make it feel more personal than just what I happen to have in my head. Wow, that's really, really... So it's very collaborative. It's super collaborative storytelling. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, well, that's a technique you can use in anything. It's just something that here we, uh, you know, it's something that we really encourage, you know, uh, within the system. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we are going to link everything uh, in the show notes over at thetomeshow.com. So if people 
want to get their hands on the Kickstarter or they want to check out uh, your blog, which has a ton of information on this, or if they want to, uh, you know, follow Together Studios mm-hmm. on Twitter, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, it's there. But for those people who uh, are have this in their ear holes, uh, why don't we give them some information? Where can they go if they want to find out more about you and about Phoenix Dawn Command and Together Studios? Right. So the basic uh, web addresses are Keith hyphen baker so k-e-i-t-h dash b-a-k-e-r that's my site and that is also i am posting a lot of things about phoenix and as the month goes on i'll be posting more about the world and the story and the mechanics Uh, our other site is together studios that's t-w-o gather studios all one word uh, and there again, you will find links to a lot of different things, including both the Kickstarter and uh, the places where people have written about it. And um, those are the main things other than the Kickstarter itself. So as I say, we will be writing a lot more about it and uh, a lot more getting into depth about things. Right, right. And of course, you guys are regularly updating via Facebook, via Twitter. Uh, yes. Where are you on Twitter? So I am Hellcow Keith. That's K-E-I-T-H is my uh, my Twitter name, and then it's Together Studio without the S at the end, uh, and it's T-W-O, you know, G-E-T-H-E-R Studio, uh, where that's all our official stuff. Excellent, excellent. Keith, is there anything I forgot to ask you about Phoenix Dawn Command? I don't think so. I think uh, I think we've really covered most of the, the stuff about it. One thing I'll just throw out is just the last thing. I mentioned that you have this pool of magical energy, your sparks, and that's part of the thing where you burn those to sort of use supernatural powers that you possess, but you can also burn them directly one-to-one to sort of add to the results of an action you're trying to take. And so that's, again, where I was saying it's about sort of narrative control and you knowing what you're capable of. Uh, When I say, okay, I want to leap up and, you know, stab the undead giant in the head, I know I can pull this off, but I might have to burn a bunch of sparks to do it. And again, when you run out of sparks, you die. So this is back to that. You can push yourself to do amazing things. It's just that's counting down your clock and that it's always part of what the game is about of that sense of when is it worth it. And the big thing to me is every game I've played, you know, again, yes, people are dying, but it's always, it always feels dramatic and awesome. So, wow. That, I, I really cannot wait to play. I want to play the game right now. I'm so <laughs> excited for it. Uh, it sounds awesome. Uh, we obviously wish you the best of luck with this Kickstarter. Things are looking great. Uh, I, if you're out there, I encourage you to uh, go ahead and pledge sooner rather than later. Uh, because if you do, you never know what great stretch goals might come up as well. That's right. So, we do have some. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Keith, thank you very much for being on the roundtable today. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, that's going to do it for the roundtable this week. Where can people find you, Jeff Greiner? Uh, I'm here. That's right. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sam Dillon, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash DM Samuel or on RPG Musings where you will not find a conversion document. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy Hurley, where can people find you? You can find me on, on my blog at sarahdarkmagic.com or on Twitter at sarahdarkmagic. 
And Liz Tice, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Liz Tice, spelled Liz the is. <laughs> and people, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. You can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. Or you could email Jeff, thetomeshow at gmail.com. Or we even have a biz line, 919-BIZ-TOME. Give it a call, people. And uh, quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog. It's all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jeff, Sam, Tracy, Liz, and Keith. Extra thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join that Tome Show lineup. And you don't have to do this every week. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, to Sam Dillon for getting this podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com. Use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable. <laughs>